90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing just fine, John. How about yourself? Not doing too bad. About ready to take the Python Roadshow on the road again <laughs> and <laughs> do some uh, last round of workshops and get ready for the American Meteorological Society Conference coming oh, up right yeah. after that's, the first of the year. That's right. Where Where is this at this year? Austin. That's right. Yeah. It Yeehaw. will be nice to be in Austin in not July. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that will that will definitely be good. Yeah, it's really hot here right now, so I understand. <laughs> yes, but we're actually really excited to be joined today by a special guest to talk to us about some high-resolution imaging and some really interesting technology they've been developing. So we're happy to welcome Gene Cooper to the show. Hi, Gene. How are you? Uh, good. How are you? Excellent. Doing pretty great. Would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself, introducing yourself uh, as if you're on a panel? <laughs> uh, sure. So Gene Cooper, I'm uh, the one of the owners of Giga Macro, along here with uh, Graham Bird. And this is a company that has evolved over time from doing national parks work and museum exhibits. And now our main focus is Giga Macro, which is high resolution imaging systems. So what is your your background and you can go as far back as you want, but how did, how did you get to where you are today? Sure. So I'm personally trained as a photographer and artist. So, you know, I went to art school years ago and then did my master's at ASU on interactive arts. So I sort of come at it from that background and I had been doing a lot of different interactive work, photography, uh, video exhibits, uh, museums, and uh, other clients in that realm. And then we saw that there was a big need to do high resolution imaging in that sort of space for other universities and uh, museums, science centers, and so forth. So we started to look at what are the, some of the issues and challenges that they have. And a lot of it has to do with uh, you know, managing their collections and managing their research uh, imaging process and so forth. And we decided to try a uh, setting up a system that is can tackle some of those challenges, and that's how sort of Giga Macro arose from that um, back in maybe 2009 is when we started that work. Did you do any work with Gigapan imaging before that? Like, how, how did you choose that this was the way you're going to help um, manage these places' data? So as it turns out, um, I had known the co-founders of Gigapan, uh, Ela Norbaugh and Randy Sargent, and had done some uh, loose collaborations with them and uh, showing at conferences and showing off some of the Gigapan uh, technology and so forth at conferences such as Seagraph and so forth. And we had talked with them a bit and with their contacts with researchers in universities and, and so forth, we've found that they actually felt that there was a big need for that type of imaging as well. Uh, in their realm, they were doing a lot on the panoramic side. And in our realm, they saw that, yes, there's absolutely a need for that in the macro, micro side. So we made some contacts, initial contacts at uh, Carnegie Museum of Natural History and uh, did some test imaging and a few prototype systems. And then we um, started building from there. So I'm sure that we've got a few listeners that aren't familiar with the, the terminology of a gigapan or a giga image. So what makes an image a, a giga image, a high resolution image? Right. So a gigapixel image is really typically built from many different images. So instead of just a single camera sensor taking an image and the resolution of that being limited by that particular camera, what you're really doing is utilizing the camera to take many different pictures of the entire scene at whatever magnification you need to, and then assembling those images together. Now in the giga, traditional gigapan, there are uh, what they call image mosaicing or image stitching processes that merge those images together you know, in a type of grid, and they're stitched together. 
in our process, it also requires focal stacking. So we are doing a process called focal stacking and then stitching those images together. So you might call most gigapixel images these days uh, a collection or a composite of many different images. And so people might, I, I don't know, this is where I first saw it is, you know, you see this big picture and then you can zoom in and you can see in equally excellent detail, smaller parts of that. That's the focal stacking you're talking about, right, Gene? Right, so, the, so the, there are, let me break it out into a few different steps. So the viewing of the gigapixel image is typically built on, most viewers are built on sort of a, a Google Maps or a tiled image viewing platform. And what that means is you're, you're taking that gigantic image that might take you know, minutes or hours to load on a PC and you're making it easily viewable on basically any device. And so that tiling uh, process and serving those tiles and so forth is really more along the lines of the Google map, as I said, and, and uh, being able to view it instead of a map, you're viewing the image itself. And so that is one step of the process. So that's on the viewing side. On the capture side, what we're really doing in terms of focal stacking is taking many different images at different focal positions. So in typical microscopy and macro photography, you you have a very shallow depth of field, you know, mm-hmm. as shallow as just a couple microns. So by taking many different focal planes and merging those together, that's the focal stacking. And then to add the third piece of the puzzle, you have the image stitching, which takes those focal stacked images and merges those together into a gigantic uh, mosaic. So focal stacking would be analogous then to turning the focus knob on your microscope a little bit, taking a picture, turning it a little more, taking a picture, and then combining those to get an image that has a larger depth of field? Exactly. Exactly. It's exactly the that same way. And so the higher magnification that you go, the less depth of field the lens has and the more focal stacks you need to do. So a typical focal stack may be anywhere from just a few images to maybe two, 300 images. Um, beyond that, you can, you know, focal stack, you know, say a thousand images, but it's typically not that feasible and not as many people do it that way. So most of our stacks are usually in the, you know, maybe five to a hundred focal stack uh, uh, range. Okay, and so looking on your website, under the the About tab, there's a picture of one of the early prototypes of this, and I love this because you can tell that you're you're playing with different ways to do this. There are some pieces clamped together and motors, and it looks like some prototype software and a DSLR camera attached to it. So, how did this technology evolve? Is this something that you built a proof of concept out of? things that you had already and then perfected over a period of years or what was the development process like? Sure. So the development process really started, you know, as, as you see in the photos there, it's really starting with buying a few uh, old pieces of equipment off eBay, scrapping together some electronics, sticking a camera on it, uh, building a a short little uh, capture program to get the functionality going. And once we sort of saw that, that, hey, that actually works, um, then the process went through many different iterations of uh, different designs of the system. And then finally, we ended up with um, some systems that we might call a production system, which, which fits most people's needs, although we custom build many different systems for different clients. So what uh, that typically entails is, is really just figuring out Uh, the lighting, figuring out how the camera interface gets set up, figuring out how much movement to to do in the three axes. So so this is all robotically controlled, stepper motor driven, much like a CNC type system. So those iterations are really just uh, refinement of that process. And this is probably the the Magnify 2 system that we currently um, produce is probably the fifth or sixth uh, iteration of that. Okay, yeah, and so looking at that that photo, the early prototype, and then when I saw one of your production systems at AGU, it very much reminded me of a 3D printer with a camera instead of a print head on it. Uh, is it controlled by something similar? I mean, G-code that tells the motors where to go? 
Yes, absolutely. So there is a control piece of software that we write ourselves, and that basically sends out G codes to a motor controller. And this is all actually built on an Arduino type system um, as far as the microcontroller. So we're basically sending G code to this microcontroller. It's then telling the motors how many steps to move, and it's very much like a CNC and a 3D printer. In fact, uh, some of the earlier prototypes were basically CNC kits that we uh, pre-bought and then modified to make work for the different needs. After a while though, it turned out that it was just much simpler and more effective for us to build our own sort of version of it uh, from start to finish and then we had much more control over uh, various lighting, various uh, um, components, the weight of the system and so forth. So I noticed that you also, in addition to, somebody can send you a sample and you can take these pictures, but you also send people these whole setups that you guys have built too, if they want to rent them for a certain amount of time, right? Yeah, so most of the people that we work with um, tend to prefer to buy the system themselves because they want to have that capability on hand um, most of the time. We do have some rental systems that we send out um, from time to time. Um, and then we also do some imaging here in-house. So, but I would say the bulk of our work is actually building systems for these different labs and science uh, research labs, uh, museums, science centers, universities, and so forth. Okay. That seems really fun, though, that you get to still keep a finger in all of it, right? Getting to not only build the system and satisfy that part of your creativity, but also people sending you, like, bugs or rocks or whatever to look at. It seems like that'd be fun. Oh, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So, so I really enjoy and uh, finding all these different and learning about all these different subjects and, and topics and so forth. So that's part of what keeps me really energized in the process. And, you know, there's probably not a client that we work with that uh, where I don't find something really fascinating about the work and, and come away thinking with new ideas and new thoughts about how to better image parts like that and things. So it's uh, it's quite fun and engaging that way. Uh, you guys have this really great picture of the cicada that you can actually go on to your GigaMacro website and explore. And it's so funny to me because as soon as we got our scanning electron microscope, we found a cicada and stuck it in there. <laughs> so like these poor bugs are <laughs> are totally. Oh yeah, it. we <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. We, um, that was, that specimen was from John Rollins at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History. And, and it was around the time when the 17 year cicada was coming out a, a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we thought, oh, this is a perfect opportunity to, to sort of let people see a little bit more up close what that really looks like. And, and so since we used it at that as a good example of that type of imaging. That's awesome. <laughs> so Shannon has mentioned bugs and rocks but what are some of the primary uses that you see customers buying these machines for is it mostly geologists or entomologists or who's who's using this i would say that entomology and geology are two of the largest uh, applications for the technology um, the other ones that come to mind are manufacturing we work with a number of manufacturers that need to inspect uh, parts for quality control and uh, um, and so forth in their process. And so we work with a number of those. And then we also do some work with forensics work on things such as bullet casings and so forth. And, and that has been a really exciting, uh, interesting area as well. Uh, yeah, the bullet so when, casing pictures are super neat on here. Just seeing, you know, like where the hammers have hit the bullets and stuff, that's really cool. Yeah, so, so every discipline has just a whole range of different fun stories and interesting um, anecdotes about them. And, and the bullet casings, you know, one of the anecdotes there is, is that when you go to visit some of the different crime labs and so forth, you know, typically what you'll find is, is still someone sitting down at a dual-headed dual microscope and doing manual matches with these sorts of uh, subjects. And, you know, it's just very time-intensive and so forth. And... You know, we really saw an opportunity to, to try to help that uh, discipline um, uh, use more computational methods to um, make matches between different uh, firearms and so forth and, and hopefully uh, help, you know, contribute a little bit of what we can to helping with the crime. 
So trying to take some of these huge images that have a lot of data in them and do things like match bullet casings or pick out different mineral phases in a thin section that you're looking at seems like you, know, you said automation, you know, make this a computational task. Is this something that's well suited to machine learning? Yes. So there, the, the basics of the system are that you're automating the process of taking the photos. Then from there, there's a whole set of computational um, uh, opportunities to make it more efficient in terms of uh, taking only the images that you really need to or only the images that are in focus and so forth. So there's some optimization that can really be done computationally that way. There's also some really exciting things on the lighting side, on the uh, computational photography side that go into things such as photogrammetry, uh, things such as um, stereoscopic uh, imaging and uh, photometric imaging and so forth. And, and all those are using a variety of different lighting angles and uh, camera angles to sort of produce more three-dimensional work. Our system as it is right now in most of our work you're able to produce 3D imagery with uh, the focal stacking process. And then some of these other techniques are, are well suited to adapt into that uh, as to expand on what we currently have. So we've been working at a variety of different things on that level as well. So when a user or somebody comes to you and wants to buy one of these, um, how, do, how does this go together are you guys the ones that are making these viewers for them or you know i mean your background's in art how how did you get involved in this sort of computational photography that's very interesting to me yeah so uh, i'll give you the uh, try to give you a short history of it so back in the day when we were still making uh, uh, images in dark rooms and so forth. You know, I, I actually made lots of panoramas, uh, well, not stitched panoramas, but seamless <laughs> panoramas back then. And so that had a bit of a passion for me uh, back then as far as taking multiple exposures and uh, did and in the dark room making panoramas. And, you know, there's a long history of people doing that. Mm -hmm. um, so then moving into uh, my work at Arizona State and and other learning, you know, we got to do a lot more programming and get introduced to that. Uh, so learning all these different techniques and just sort of evolving that from there. So I started as an artist, but, you know, but just by sheer necessity, you know, I've had to learn a lot of different tools to the point to where we write a lot of the software ourselves. On our particular software, we write all the capture process. We write a uh, piece that we call a workflow manager um, and then we write the viewing applications uh, that deliver the end results to the public and then for some of the items that are already have off-the-shelf sort of products out there such as focal stacking and image stitching we use off-the-shelf components for that okay. so so we do a variety of uh, mix and match and uh, best of breed um, products that we integrate into what we do. And, you know, we see a lot of advantage to that. Um, so in terms of the overall system, we, we see is the real value of being able to marry all these things together and integrating them together in a seamless application. So the user gets handed everything they need then they've got their stack of bugs and you hand them all this stuff <laughs> and they can easily use it right exactly awesome. and and we've seen it happen a lot of times where you know you get a microscope and then it's like okay now you have to figure out you know how to <laughs> yes. plug a camera into it or you do that so we try to take all that um guesswork and self-learning out of it as far as you know what's required of the user and we try to package that all together and to one system. So what they get is they get, you know, everything from the camera to the computer to the um, robotics to the, you know, uh, j just everything as a turnkey system. Now, some users are quite adept already at all these different technologies, and they can really expand on that quite quickly. Uh, University of Minnesota has done some great work um, uh, with that. And, and then some other clients, they just want to be able to have a system that, you know, plug and play, you turn it on, you go through a little bit of training and, and you're off and running. So we have a, it's a wide range and it's sometimes it's hard to serve that very wide range of uh, user knowledge, uh, you know, in terms of 
what they want to do and how much time they want to spend on the technology side of it. But we try to make it as easy as we can. So let's say that I've written a grant and I got the grant, I go out and I collect my samples, I come back and I've got a stack of hand samples and a box of thin sections. So let's start with the thin sections, the, the 2D imaging problem. So I put all my thin sections onto your machine. What happens from there? How long does it take? What kind of resolution can I get uh, from photographing all these thin sections? Sure. So that's a typical um, big question. And, you know, part of the benefit of the system is being able to sort of choose your resolution. So that makes this particular question uh, difficult because that's the first thing we usually ask is, you know, well, what resolution do you want to have it at or what magnification do you want to use? And so most of our customers are on the thin section side are usually going anywhere from 3x magnification to 10x magnification. Some of them are going beyond that, uh, but typically we're in that that ballpark. Um, so for a 5x uh, thin section, for example, it might take an hour to uh, to image that. Um, and then to post-process that, you know, is about the same time or a little bit longer. Um, but all of this is fairly automated in terms of the process. So once you start the system running, it just does the rest on its own. And the same way with the post-processing, once you sort of start that, it runs sort of in the background. So what we'll typically do and what we put a lot of work into is say that you have a group of thin sections and you want to just digitize all those at once. We'll set up a what we call a template uh, where you can batch digitize those that set of uh, thin sections or samples. And that helps speed up and automate that process um, uh, quite a bit and makes it a lot more you know, feasible rather than having someone uh, sitting there all day long waiting for you know, a system or working with a system. You can sort of hit the button and, and go away for a while. So I can put 20 thin sections on the machine and walk away while it runs for 20 plus hours. Right. Certainly there's some setup uh, to get things initially going. Uh, but once you have that sort of dialed in, then you can sort of let the system run. And are there any concerns of if I'm running it for a long time, say I'm coming into the room and turning the light on and off or there's sunlight coming in through the window? Uh, are there any concerns about things like that changing the image quality as we go along and making stitching more difficult? Uh, no, actually, that's pretty independent. So a couple of the things that are real particular for microscopy uh, imaging are vibration and light. And those two things are pretty easily handled both by the high-speed flashes that we use. So these are your, you know, pretty much your standard flash. But what a lot of people don't really realize is that even though your shutter speed might be something like one two hundredth of a second, the actual flash duration is much shorter uh, in the range of maybe a one one thousandth of a second. So that both freezes the uh, uh, any motion or vibration that might be in the system. And it also uh, provides us with the ability to throw a huge amount of light at it in a very short duration. So things like ambient lights and so forth don't really uh, come into effect that. Okay. And so then we run, we get all of our thin sections. Now I've got some hand samples. How big of a hand sample can I reasonably uh, digitize here and take all these photos? of how, how deep can I go and how large X and Y? Sure. So on the standard system that we produce, uh, you know, the imaging area is roughly 20 inches by 24 inches. So and you could put something in there that's maybe six to 10 inches uh, deep on that. And it'll handle a couple hundred pounds on the imaging deck. Um, so that, you know, is probably on the exact system that's on. A, you'll see on the website that's that's sort of the range of sizes, everything down to a thin section all the way up to a large uh, rock sample. Um, with that said, there's a number of custom systems that we still build for um, a variety of things. And one of those is for core samples. So in, in that case, you know, for example, we made a, another system that had a six foot imaging deck uh, to be able to do core samples. So 20 inches wide and six foot long. And so that you know allows someone to place core samples on there, image them, and so forth, and, and do that um, fairly efficiently. 
So we, geologists are pretty used to looking at core logs, so logs of different properties downhole when they're taking these cores. Have you thought about or seen anybody do integration of core logs with the core photos or even taking some of the readings as you're taking photos? For example, measuring the conductivity of the core as your gantry is moving and taking the photos. Now, that's a great question. I don't know of any specific examples of that. However, it could very well be going on in the background. There's a couple of companies that use it for core imaging, and it's very possible that they're also integrating that. But we're not quite aware of that at, at the moment. Um, so certainly that's possible. Uh, we just don't know any particular cases where that's been done. Okay. I could see that being really a really cool thing as a geologist wanting to understand something, you zoom in on a section of core and overlaid, you can see traces from when the borehole was drilled. It seems like it'd be a really powerful thing to be able to see the contact physically and in the data from the, the borehole. Uh, sure, sure. That would be really uh, fascinating. So certainly all the pieces are there to be able to do that. And, you know, this is probably a prime example of someone mentioning something to us, uh, such as what you just described, and then us going back to the drawing board a little bit and saying, oh, well, you know, if we added this or we uh, improve that particular capability, then, wow, we have a whole new capability built in. Yeah. So we, we love finding those those uh, uh, learning points. That would be super great, because, I mean, in this case, it could be as simple as adding a holder to the mechanism, you know, to hold whatever instrument, you know, whether it's a handheld camera ray sensor, or an XRD, or something like that, and you can just kind of put it alongside. That's a really great idea that I would love to have data from. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So, well, that might be, you know, we're going to, we'll be up at the, uh, the geology, Geological Society of America conference again. And so maybe that might be something that I'm talking with some of our colleagues about. Oh, there. great. I, I will stop by and remind you. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. We actually had uh, Alicia White, who runs the Embedded.fm podcast, had some really good questions for you all. Uh, one of which was, what is the most unexpectedly prettiest mineral at scale? <laughs> and what are some of the interesting things that you're learning from looking really closely at things? What are some of the neat cases that you've seen? So I'm probably going to give you a different answer than what uh, a true ge geologist might give you. I'm <laughs> going to give you the artist uh, version in me. So, um, you know, we did some wave plate, uh, uh, cross-polarized wave plate imaging recently with um, some thin sections, and one of them was uh, a basalt thin section. And, you know, immediately when I was looking at it, I thought, oh my gosh, this is just like uh, an amazing abstract painting, you know, when you get into all those colors and so forth. And, and so it revealed a whole new world of, of minerals and colors. And, and it just looked beautiful as, a, as, a, as an image itself. So that was one of the ones that really struck me from, you know, ge geologists might find some other things that are more fascinating than that. <laughs> but uh, yeah. well, I will say when I was looking at, um, you've got some images of some igneous rocks up on your website. And I told John before the show, it's like, I mean, if you're into those kind of rocks, these are pretty nice, but <laughs> I do boring <laughs> sedimentary rocks. So, you know. <laughs> well, I remember you said that doing the cross polar work, as an undergrad sitting in mineralogy lab, the first time when you're looking through a petrographic microscope and you slide the cross polar in, it's just amazing <laughs> how things light up. Yeah, absolutely. And then adding the wave plate on top of that was was a was another new thing that we were more more recently exploring. So yeah, you get some yeah. really cool colors, um, especially on those igneous rocks. Just like you said, those are the those are the pretty rocks. That's for sure. <laughs> and so one of the other questions she had was one of the applications on your website was looking at circuit boards and doing some manufacturing inspection. And you had mentioned that earlier. She said if there was a chip, a microprocessor that had some code in flash that she wanted to read out, could you actually read that code off the flash if you did something like decap the chip? So that's a good question. Uh, so to my knowledge, the answer is no. That's probably in the uh, Blade Runner science fiction, maybe Star Trek <laughs> sort, of, sort of realm as far as that goes. But this is all an optical process at this point. So given that you know most of that is uh, magnetically charged um, particles and so forth, that's that's pretty hard to do. Um, incidentally, um, you know one of the 
aha moments, you know, in terms of technology, imaging technology components, you know, was taking a uh, hard drive, you know, uh, disc uh, apart and, and, you know, I thought, oh, well, this would be really cool to see all the, all the detail in the hard drive disc, you know, and everything. And I thought, well, that'd be fantastic. And, you know, when you get it down to it, and it's just a bare piece of metal. It's all magnetically charged on there. You can't see anything. So right. <laughs> unless, you, unless you get to a, an electron micron stage. But in terms of the flash, uh, we do do some imaging of uh, flash and uh, uh, chips, uh, in particular MEMS chips and so forth. And those are just fascinating as a mechanical electro device, you know, to uh, explore and look at. And we do have some um, customers that, that work with us on those applications as far as doing quality control and so forth. Um, but as far as being able to read the actual data stored on it, now that would be a little bit hard as far as I'm aware. But you can get down to actually looking at silicon architecture with your system. Sure. Wow. Sure. Now, on uh, now, if you go onto our website and you're looking for, uh, if you just type in wafer, for example, in the search, you'll you'll see some different um, silicon wafers. Now, those you can you can actually see the circuitry and transistors and so forth um, in those wafers. So those are quite, <clears throat> or excuse me, quite fascinating to um, to look at and to explore. In fact, you know we. Um, uh, couldn't figure out what one of these wafers was when we found one, you know, on a stray eBay, eBay site or something like that. And sure enough, if you zoom in far enough on it, you'll see the serial number and everything oh. on, uh, <laughs> on some of the wafers. So it was kind of fun. Uh, so as I get older, I'm going to need one of these systems just in general, right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah. talking about that kind of that kind of resolution, I mean, how big are these data sets? So they can get fairly large. So in, in terms of resolution of the image itself, we get down to about one micron per pixel. Now, of course, for those of you that are that are microscopists, there's a big difference in terminology of whether you're talking about optical resolution, like the ability of the lens to resolve a particular detail uh, versus pixel resolution, which is how many pixels are represented in that space. Um, so it's a combination of those that really determines the ultimate resolution. But in terms of pixels per millimeter or pixels per inch and so forth, you know, it's it's in the one micron uh, sort of range. Now, with regard to the file sizes, those can get fairly large. I would generally say if you have a gigapixel image, a one gigapixel image, which is a thousand megapixels, you're generally looking at a file size in a Photoshop format of around 1.5 to 2 gigabytes. Um, so that's about the storage of, of the final image. And we typically store in Photoshop large format, mainly because it's one of the few formats that can handle those very, very large files. Mm -hmm. And even there, we've had to go beyond that for a couple images that go even beyond the Photoshop large uh, format. So the file sizes can get large. We have large servers here that, that handle the data. But what we usually start people out with is just your standard, you know, four terabyte, eight terabyte drive, you know, and you can easily manage that data and hard drives being what they are today, you know, it's fairly easy to expand your storage. I love the phrase, your standard four terabyte drive, <laughs> like something we would have said, you <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, no big yeah. deal. <laughs> well, and I mean, bits are getting relatively cheap now to store, but I'm curious, you said that there's a, the processing time can be as long as the imaging time, the time to actually do the, the focal depth stacking and then putting the image together. Have you explored doing things like taking the images and sending them up to a cloud service as they're being taken to be stitched together remotely so that you have a relatively low power machine sitting on the desk and all of the true computation is happening out on Amazon Web Services or something? Sure. So we have explored that. And the the issue with that is that sometimes the cost uh, or the uh, time benefit of that is really nulled out or even worsened by uh, the upload time of sending all that data up to the cloud. Um, so certainly it's possible. Um, in most of the cases, we find that it actually takes longer to upload the images to a cloud server, uh, have them processed and then sent back to us than it is to actually run it on the on the local machine. So for, for that reason, we typically still stay with a uh, workstation. Now what we do 
um, set up for some customers is we set up, you know, one or more processing machines, which are just basic machines. Um, and if they're all networked together, then they can access the same data and they just uh, make the process a lot quicker by leaving the capture system open to take photos and, and leaving as many processing machines as you want to compute that imagery. Okay, yeah. So that, that makes sense. And I, I guess you deal with a lot of people that have probably limited upload. Some universities have some amazing connections. You know, you'll get a 100, 100 meg symmetric connection or something. Uh, but if you've got somebody that's running the system on a 1 meg upload, I can definitely see that being an issue for as many photos as you're taking. Sure. And I guess I should mention, so the project files, so say that you have a, take a one gigapixel image. Uh, let's take, for example, a standard thin section uh, slide taken at 5x. Uh, you probably have, uh, if I go back to my uh, projects that I've done here, you probably have about 20 gigabytes worth of data that you're probably taking. The, the end image is probably more like two gigabytes. So you've actually got a lot more data that you have to upload before you get to that final file. So that even more so makes it less uh, efficient to upload to the cloud. Right. So if I did want to get started and explore whether using a Giga Macro system would be right for my research application, what are some of the options that I have in terms of sending you a sample or buying a machine and what's the cost of these things look like? Sure. So we're always happy to do some sample imaging um, for you if you have something and you want to take a look at it and see what the options are and so forth. So that we do pretty regularly for a lot of different um, uh, folks. And the uh, so what we typically do is have you send us a couple samples. Um, if you want, we also set up a little demo so that you can see exactly how the system works, you know, and answer questions. And then from there, we will upload those to the viewer to let you play with those and get, sort of have the experience of having a machine there. And then from there, we'll, based on the type of imaging you're looking at, we'll send you a quote and, and a timeline for when we could get you a system. So the base price starts around 48. And, you know, most systems are somewhere in the 48 to $60,000 range, depending upon what you set them up with. Um, now that does include all the lenses and equipment and software licenses and so forth and computer and, and all that sort of stuff together with it. So that's sort of the, the ballpark range that, that I would say. Okay. And if folks wanted to actually see one of these systems in operation, you all do go on the road some, right? Yeah, we usually go to a number of different conferences. Um, we also have a couple distributors in the U.S. that that have systems on hand uh, for demos. And and then, you know, a lot of times, uh, some of our uh, customers, such as um, Callan Bentley at uh, Northern Virginia Community College, you know, they have three systems there and they've been always very kind and generous with their time to, you know, answer questions or let someone take a tour of their of their work. And, and they've been doing some of the best work around with uh, both GigaPan and GigaMacro. Uh, imaging. Uh, so they've really been building up a, a huge um, uh, teaching collection and educational set of content there. I, I'm still in shock. They have three? That's impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have one that, uh, so Northern Virginia Community College has uh, an early prototype system, mm -hmm. and then they have two of the Magnify 2 systems, and, and they've just been doing some fantastic work with all of those uh, uh, systems and have really dedicated a lot of uh, a lot of their effort to building this this very impressive uh, teaching collection of content and data. Do you ever get to take this into the like K through twelve theater and just show it off? I know kids love seeing stuff that's magnified. I can't imagine some of these entomology pictures going over really well with kids. Sure. Yeah, we have a, a great time. We go to a lot of different schools in the local area here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's part of our, we, we never really expect to, uh, you know, get anything financially back from those exhibits. We, we just love to um, interact with them and, and show at that. So we go to a lot of maker fairs. We go to a lot of school events. We go to a lot of um, science fairs uh, for K through 12 and, and so forth. And, and it's, really a lot of fun and, and often you know as the the case usually is with with kids and everything 
you know, you think that, okay, I don't know if they'll quite pick up this, but, but in fact, they're actually way ahead of you on, on everything. So <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Every time. Well, <laughs> I mean, pinch to zoom is so natural to kids now. <laughs> I can just imagine they expect to be able to look at an image and pinch to zoom down to the micron level. And that's and true. That's just not that big oh, of a sure. deal to them. <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, at one of the Maker Faire uh, events here in the Bay Area, um, you know, we had, uh, this was a few years ago, we had, uh, you know, our viewer running and there's a little game controller and stuff to be able to zoom in and, and uh, work around the imagery. And, and my daughter, who was I think three or three and a half at the time, you know, just kept playing and playing and playing with it and worked out great for us too, because it, it really showed the interaction. <laughs> quite well for that, so. oh, it's also a great way to find memory leaks when somebody keeps <laughs> zooming. That's right. Images. Yeah. If, if you want a beta test, set your kids down in front of it. Exactly. <laughs> so what is, what, what's some of the upcoming technology that you're most excited about? Where do you think the field of imaging is going to be in, say five or 10 years. Yeah, so I think a lot of the direction is going into uh, computational photography and a variety of different processes that. So using things much more uh, efficiently in terms of the computational power and not uh, uh, being so reliant upon uh, large monolithic systems. Um, so. For example, um, you know, there's a lot of work in the, in the DIY community and so forth, and the Raspberry Pi has just exploded in terms of its capabilities and so forth. Now, typically, you're not going to use those lenses for microscopy work, but just as an example of where things are going, you know, you can get a Raspberry Pi with a whole Linux processor and computer board and everything, you know, for with a camera for, you know, well under $50. And so you gang a lot of these together and suddenly you have a pretty powerful system. So I think a lot of the directions are going into really making use of this sort of agile um, programming and rapid development of uh, small microservices and devices that can interact and work together as one. All right. I think that's a, a great place. And yeah. if, if you've got multiple, I can imagine if you have multiple imagers, it's almost like doing parallel computing physically. You can take multiple images at once and really speed up the process. And that'll be possible as hardware costs come down. Exactly. And as an example of that, you know, there are different photographic uh, photogrammetry systems that, you know, where they set up a, a Raspberry Pi and a, and a whole array of cameras and can do that fairly affordably. And then they're all taking in, uh, photos at the same time, you know, sort of like a matrix style type thing where you're snapping <laughs> things and doing very fast capture there. So so all that's come from, you know, very expensive technology in the past to very, very affordable things. And that's sort of opened up uh, the world for a lot of different developers such as ourselves to really um, utilize that technology in the future here. All right. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to add? No, we just really, uh, one of the things that I'd love to add to the talk here is, is, is really just an invitation to anyone to contact us. And we love to learn and we love to learn about your work and all sorts of different disciplines. And that's really what feeds our energy and our creativity a lot. And so we we love those interactions, collaborations, and so forth. And so even if you're not going to buy a system, feel free to contact us and say, hey, you know, I was thinking about this the other day, and uh, do you think that this would work? And, and we're happy to answer questions and, and you know, uh, contribute where we can there. All right. I think some of our listeners will probably take you up on that. Yes. If they do want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, so the best way to reach us is to give us a, a a call uh, you know my numbers on there or you can also email us or go to the website and so forth the other thing to mention for all the viewers uh, or listeners out there is is that our viewer platform you know we've been really trying to push that out as a free service to people so um, I should mention that that you can anyone can make an account there and go online upload their own imagery whether it's taken with Giga Macro or not and start to work with it. So we really want to try to provide a benefit to a lot of different folks, not just people who that buy our systems. And uh, so please, you know, make use of those resources and we're happy to help support all this great work that's out there. All right, well, we appreciate you taking the time to join us today. 
Oh, thank you very much for the opportunity. Much appreciated. So Shannon, are you ready to go load up on photography gear and start taking some gigapixel images of everything in your lab? Uh, were you talking to me? I was on Amazon buying stuff. Sorry. <laughs> oh. So I can do just that. <laughs> yeah, that's stellar, stellar stuff. Um, I'm super excited about that technology. Yes. And I, I think that we're going to have to have Gene back on yes. to talk some more about the, the creation process and where things go with Giga Macro. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm very excited and I can't wait to see him at GSA. <laughs> right. But without further ado, I think it's time that we move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay. <laughs> oh, so we got a rubber band one finally, huh? <laughs> we did so this comes to us from listener steve i think we may have mentioned <laughs> something about rubber bands at some point on the show you were talking about spin stabilized rubber bands flying across a room uh, <laughs> yeah yeah and so he sent us this little short article uh, by jb brown called thermodynamics of a rubber band so this is from the american journal of physics from 1963 <laughs> Which is great because we had challenged Steve to find something. <laughs> and it's really interesting. I don't know if you knew this previously, um, but it basically talks about the negative expansion coefficient associated with this weird thing about rubber bands, right? Um, if you stretch a rubber band, it gets hot. But conversely, when you let go of it, it gets really cold and you can tell this when you're doing it. And that's the weirdest thing ever, right? Cause it seems kind of, I don't know, counterintuitive maybe. I don't know. Well, it does because if you think about a gas, you take uh, a compressed air can and spray it and it gets cooler. The gas is adiabatically expanding. And we've mm -hmm. talked about this on here before. Adiabatic expansion is cooling. Mm -hmm. Adiabatic compression is warming. We talked about it on the hurricane show. We said it's the whole basis for how hurricanes work. And now we're saying, but when you stretch this thing, it gets hot. When you expand it, it gets hot. And when you contract it, it gets cold. And it seems like physics is broken. But this isn't the only material that has this. If you think about water below 4 degrees Celsius, when you get towards the freezing point of water, instead of getting less volumetrically large when it cools, it actually starts getting bigger as it cools and smaller as it warms mm -hmm. up until that four degrees celsius point yeah right this is this has to do with a bunch of physics of lakes you talk about lakes overturning and that sort of thing has to do with this weird um weird property of water and you know the freezing point that four degrees c special thing which i'm sure we can talk about in a whole nother show <laughs> it's true and so this negative thermal expansion coefficient is a little counterintuitive but in this paper, Brown talks about doing an experiment where you can hang a one kilogram weight from a chain of rubber bands and point a heater at them and lift the weight off the table. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really awesome. Um, and I'm definitely going to try this. Um, you can do a modification of this, too. And instead of this um, one kilogram weight, he's push, uh, positioned a stick, right? and this horizontal stick, and by doing this, um, heating up parts of the rubber bands, you can make the stick move, like, within, t like, 10 centimeters, I think he says. Yeah. That's impressive, right? Oh, yeah. And if you want a mental model to think about this, you can think of all of the, the molecules that make up the rubber band being very entwined, tangled, this complex structure, and when you stretch the rubber band, you're putting work into it to make these more ordered, and therefore it heats up. It's actually like compressing a gas. It's like pushing the piston in on a cylinder gas system. It's just like expanding the rubber band. And then when you let go of the rubber band, all of these thermally excited molecules are trying to get tangled back up, and they actually do work themselves and hence get cooler. So strange. <laughs> so counterintuitive. And the, the temperature change isn't great, but there you can hold it up to your lips and feel it. 
And Ben Krasnow, who was interviewed on Embedded.fm in the past, actually has a video where he tried to make a a rubber band refrigerator. He called it. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a pretty excellent YouTube video that I'm sure we will link into the show notes as well. Um, mostly because there's this really cool handheld CNC wood router that he uses to build the refrigerator that I was really blown away by and have also been shopping for ever since that watching it. Uh, so I hate to tell you this, but I got to play with one at Maker Fair last oh, year. Oh man, of course uh, you have. <laughs> <laughs> was it as cool they, as it looked? Yes, so it's it's a very very neat router. Yeah. Uh, but you can watch the video, watch him build this, and he actually does some stuff with a thermal camera where you can see that the rubber bands indeed are getting hot when they're stretched. And then he blows air across them to get them back to room temperature, and then lets them contract inside a chamber, and it does get a little bit cooler in there. Yeah, that was pretty neat. And there's also another video that I'll link in, which is one of the great physics minds, Richard Feynman. Uh, going on a, a couple-minute digression in an interview, talking about this exact property of rubber bands, <laughs> and he gets just gleeful <laughs> about it, and it's it's really great to watch. Oh, just watching excellent. somebody that has that much passion and enthusiasm. Yes, exactly. That's great. So I thought this was great that this is something that you can do at home as a demonstration of some relatively non-intuitive and interesting physics phenomena because I'm guessing that everybody listening probably can find a rubber band within <laughs> reach almost. Right, exactly. Um, and that was, that was exactly what I did. I went straight for it and thought, wow, I do this every day, and I've never even thought about this. And what an interesting um, sort of exception to the rule. Yeah, so physics is everywhere around you. <laughs> <laughs> and good job, uh, Steve, on finally coming through on that rubber band paper. <laughs> And yes, somebody did send us a rubber band paper. So <laughs> we will link the, the YouTube video from Ben and Richard Feynman in the notes, as well as a link to this paper. The article is actually short enough. You can read the entire thing in the preview window. You don't have to pay to download the PDF. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Steve, for sending that in. If you have any further rubber band papers we're still challenging somebody to find one on spin stabilization of rubber band projectiles we would love to hear from you or if you would like to say what you would put under a giga macro system to take a gigapixel image of we would also be very interested in hearing that shannon how can they get a hold of us you can get a hold of us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com and as always we're on twitter john is at geo underscore lehman i am at shannon doolin together we are at don't panic geo or you can always um throw any fun paper ideas or any of those photos our way on our slack channel swung.rocks and the don't panic channel and until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our